You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 77. Today, I talk with Dr. Christy Angevine, and we talk about your self-critic. We all have it, that voice in our head that says, are you doing the right thing? Are you sure about that? I don't know if you could do this. We'll have tips on how you can satisfy that self-critic and start living the life that you want. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to rate and review it and tell your friends. Enjoy the show. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back to the show. I'm so excited about this guest. I have followed all of her work for so long and we were actually just kind of struggling with what to talk about because she has so much to talk about. This is Dr. Christy Angevine. She is an OBGYN and now a full-time coach and really helping so many people, like the exponential effect that she has as a coach can just not be denied. So I'm so excited to have her on the show. So welcome, Dr. Angevine. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, and of course, just call me Christy and what a beautiful intro. That is so sweet of you. And I really love thinking about my work as having that exponential effect. So such kind words, but thank you for having me on. I do think of these times where we get to actually sort of meet as close to in real life as possible as excuses to have coffee and kind of geek out on all the things that we love to talk about. Um, so I'm Christy Angevine. I am married. I have an 11 and a seven year old. We live in central Oregon. I was an OBGYN in private practice and for about 11 years. And then I transitioned to being a full-time coach, which I never, ever, ever imagined that I would ever do. And I, I'm so happy being an entrepreneur and business owner in the sense that it's, it's the way that I can contribute. And it's something that like we were talking about before we started recording that it's work that doesn't feel like work that I am drawn towards in a way that's very similar to how I was drawn towards delivering babies and operating and doing clinic. And anyway, so about two years ago, I shifted from being a full-time clinician to doing this work full-time. And it wasn't because I didn't love where I was. I, I mean, there are things about that world that I, I don't know that I spontaneously wake up missing in the morning, but that when I remember them, I mean, I, Every time I go back to the hospital, just for like, you know, my screening colonoscopy, when I was hearing about a code being called on labor and delivery or hearing these, I felt drawn to those things because I really loved them. And I think it's just super cool that I was able to find something that I loved as much and then decide to go for it. You know, a lot of people um, would ask or wonder, you know, what made the transition for you? Like, was it a, a shift or was it a gradual shift into this or, you know, was it a sudden thing? What led you onto this path? Uh, I'm curious. Yeah, it was gradual for me. So I was on call one night watching a baby strip, waiting for somebody to deliver. And I ended up listening to a podcast and it had all sorts of coaching tenants, lots of, you know, cognitive behavioral stuff, lots of dialectical behavioral ideas. And it was all, it wasn't foreign to me, but it was generally quite new in the sense that I've never heard a physician talking about these mindset things in a way that seemed practical for me and my call shift and my charting and my happiness and my, what felt like, um, just maybe a persistent level of sort of like heightened anxiety about wanting to make sure I was doing everything just right. 
And so it turned me on to just the field of coaching. I really didn't, you know, as an OBGYN, I mean, I, I knew my tiny little field. I knew, you know, about minimally invasive surgery. I knew about all obstetrical emergencies, but I really didn't know much about other fields. Like my husband was a, you know, ICU nurse. So we knew all things clinical and all things mountain biking, very narrow. That's all we knew. And as I started learning more about this coaching thing, I realized it was so fascinating to me in a way that topics in med school and topics in college that really drew my interest were fascinating. There's just something about it that I was getting up early to read about it. I was listening to more podcasts and I realized, okay, there's something here for me. And instead of just ignore it, which a lot of times, cause I was busy, I would just ignore things. I was like, I'm going to really listen to this. And so then I found out that there's, you know, <laughs> surprise, surprise, there's a way you can train to become a coach and you can go get credentials and you can go learn all the things. And before I even had hired a coach to experience it, in the way that I was learning about it, I decided I wanted to go do training so I could learn, you know, learn all the things. Um, and, and as I say that I reflect back, I did have a, a sort of a career coach at one point in my early in my career and her approach was amazing, but it was very different than what I was learning. Her approach was sort of like, how do we look at all career options? How do we think about things in a meaningful way? Um, and it was so different than what I was actually learning about how I could think about my thinking, how I could experience my emotions differently, how I could be deliberate about how I showed up based on looking at what my assumptions and biases were. So I decided to, you know, go into training. And I remember being at my kitchen Island with my husband and thinking, okay, this man is going to think I have lost my, I don't know if we can swear on here. I've lost my marbles um, <laughs> because I'm going to talk to him about investing a sizable chunk of money into something that I don't know that much about, but that there's something about it that feels really meaningful. And I remember telling him that, you know, I think this is something I can work into my clinical day. I can block off an hour on Wednesdays to go to these courses. I can you know, have extra time to read. I don't think it should impact our family. And maybe it can be something that when I retire, you know, when I'm in my sixties, when I retire from a GYN, maybe I can do this life coaching thing. Maybe that'll be a cool portable thing that we can kind of do. That feels fun. And he, you know, and he was like, okay, sounds great. He could tell I felt so drawn towards it. He was like, I think you need to do this. So I learned definitely a calling. Definitely I mean, a calling. It feels right? very yeah. similar to medicine. It is definitely a calling. Um, and you know, I, I, your story reminds me of Hina Santries earlier. She's a, a trauma surgeon and she, you know, wanted to follow the path and she wanted to become the department chair. And that's how she thought she was going to uh, work on her mission of diversity, equity, inclusion, and things like that. And the thing is, is that I think we all have this goal to help people, our exponential effect on the world, and all the things that we know we can do. And it's just the path sometimes reveals itself to not be what you expected. <laughs> 100%. Yes, it did not. My path did, was not what I expected. And it was just right. Exactly. So and what was really funny to me is um, this uh, idea of like, I'll just decide to do this and then this keeps coming up. And so then I'll follow it. And I think that the reason why your work is so important and, you know, what my mission is so important is that, you know, our training as surgeon has taught us that we have a circumstance and there are actions results and that's how the, the world works. And everyone does the same actions and we're taught the same actions and this is the result we're supposed to get. And we don't understand why some people do well and some people have a lot of distress. And, you know, the key for me was recognizing that there is thoughts and emotions that play into that, that we had to downplay as part of our training. And I don't think necessarily we have to, but that's certainly what has happened historically. And, you know, what happened for me, and I suspect what happened for you is you start to see, 
you know, there's actually a lot more depth to this, that we can change how people train and work in the jobs. So we don't see people making the mistakes that we've made that other people have made. And and there's no question, I'm sure you see this too, is that once you get on that path and once you start helping people, you can't not help them. You can't see it and not do something about it. It's like, it's impossible to see the problem and not do something about it. Yeah. I think that really sums up why I was drawn towards making that shift from doing clinical and coaching to just doing coaching because of seeing just a vast need and seeing how, how generally easy it was once ideas were communicated to physicians who are really struggling, that they just felt so much better. And it was, it was exactly what you said. Yeah, it's great. I know we were talking a little bit about it. Some of the common things that we see, take us through one of the problems that you commonly see and, you know, how do you approach that? Okay. So how much time do we have? No, I know, right. We've already decided that we're just going to have to cut it off because we literally would talk for a lot longer than we're allowed to. Totally would. I think we could have like a weekend series about this. Um, so I think one of the most common, so they're probably by a handful and I'll just sort of like share them with you. So I help people who, you know, consider themselves to be high achievers, create habits that feel like they give more than they take. So that are more intentional and less on default. And a lot of the habits that I see in physicians are lots of overthinking, second guessing, catastrophic thinking, and tons of self-criticism and beating themselves up that may be so quiet. They don't even know they're doing it. They just sort of think well, this is who I am. I have to be hard on myself, things like that. So I'd say the first, like the most essential way that I approach this is helping people with the tools that you just mentioned with recognizing that there are thoughts and feelings that precede how we show up in the world. And by helping them do that, what I mean is I like to bring awareness so I think awareness is the key to everything. And that might sound like this big catch-all generic thing that, you know, it makes no sense if you're thinking about like, well, I need to go to the OR and do these things. But what I mean by awareness is when we can basically take a flashlight and open the junk drawer that is all of our subconscious and conscious thoughts, and we can notice when I'm thinking this way, this is how I feel. And when I feel like this, this is how I show up. It can be a game changer. And like, so for example, Say you are, and I was just talking to somebody the other day who was referencing her self-critic when she's in the OR. And she was like, you know, sometimes I'll be in there and I would just hear this mean voice that is like, what is your problem? I can't believe you did that. Didn't you see that capillary there? I can't believe it. You know, a good surgeon wouldn't. Would. And she was mentioning, she was like, I didn't know that not everybody had that voice in their head. And the way when she would think those sort of harsh thoughts would show up for her is she would feel anxious, hypervigilant, really tense. She would get snippy. She'd be irritable. She'd be super self-conscious and her cases would take longer. And then she would be beating herself up all day long, but her charting would take longer and she would come home and just be like a mess. And she was, and it all started with, she was able to shift things better just because she started being aware of these are the thoughts and these are the feelings. And so the awareness is the foundational piece to this. It reminds me, I'm I'm reading this book, uh, The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer, and he's talking about that voice. And I, I'm just laughing because he has this quote in there that that he talks about that voice we all have. It just doesn't shut up, <laughs> right? I like to think of like our self critic. So it's it's super opportunistic. Any anything, it, you know, like any things are going well, it pops right up. It's like that nosy neighbor that like comes over and knocks on your window, you know, all the time. It's just always there. 
Yes. You're not always there, but it's ready to be there. Yes. And, you know, I, I think a lot of us were used to following our instincts and doing the things. And, you know, when we hear that thought come up, it feels like a directive. It feels like this is what we're supposed to be doing. And yeah. you know, no one actually ever taught us that it, it is optional. <laughs> exactly. And I do think there's, you know, on this note that, so once we learn, you know, once we learn how to notice our thoughts, for me, that was a big deal. Like I didn't, I remember hearing people say, oh yeah, your thoughts create your feelings and your feelings drive what you do. And, and I remember reading about that in like, you know, psych 101 about cognitive therapy and it made sense intellectually, but I didn't really get it. I didn't really understand the words that I noticed in my mind when I was thinking about things that those were actually thoughts and one, and it, it actually took a while for me to identify those because I was mostly going through the world, just feeling things and just thinking that's how it was. So recognizing, oh, I can discern these things that are then optional. And then I think the piece for me that's so important is to recognize that we oftentimes hear, okay, you need to banish your inner critic, get rid of it, send it out, make it go away. And I think what is actually more effective is once we hear, like for to talk about inner critic, once we hear a voice and we go, oh, that voice is very harsh. And when I hear it, it feels like this. When we can make space for sort of getting to know that voice and understanding why it's there, I think that can give us much more meaningful shifts than trying to like silence it, make it go away with force. Because usually the reason we develop these sort of habits of thinking or maybe being harsh on ourselves is for good reason. Like it might've been the only way we knew to sort of push ourselves to get a great grade and make sure we didn't get in trouble by our parents or get a great grade, and make sure we got into the school we wanted to because we pushed ourselves. And so that voice has been doing a really, like a really good job. Yeah. And it just happens to have like an underbelly and may yeah. have overstayed its welcome. And so until we can find out, okay, what's its main intention? Like, why is it here? What's the purpose behind sort of like the meanness? Once we know that, then sometimes we can be like, oh, maybe I can accomplish that a different way without feeling all of these things that we talked about. Exactly. No, I 100% agree. Um, I wrote an article a while ago called um, Stop Resisting the Imposter. And, you know, instead of like hearing these thoughts and trying to push it away as wrong, it's like instead of taking these thoughts as a statement and instead, you know, posing it as a question, now you can actually at least answer it from your a place of, of you know, really thinking of everything as a whole. So now you're not taking it as truth and you're not, you know, dismissing it as false. Now we take it as a question that we now have the power to choose from. Yeah. I love you. I love that phrase, stop resisting the imposter, because I think, I mean, that sums up so much of what a lot of us experience is that anything that doesn't feel super great, like impostery thoughts or self-criticism, we just try to willpower, push it away, like build a dam up around it. But when we stop resisting and we can, you know, I think that's the other piece here that you're kind of alluded to is when we can get really curious about it, that's when things change. Right. And because a lot of times these thoughts are coming up from like, and as you know, uh, depths of things, you know, like we are a product of our training, our environment, our parental, you know, guidance, um, you know, the uh, gender bias of the world. I mean, we're influenced by all of these things. And so all these thoughts that are coming up are coming from the environment that we are all uniquely exposed to, which is why one size does not always fit all. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Because we might all be swimming in the same ocean of, you know, indoctrination and socialization from medical training or similar family dynamics, but the way that we have integrated them is going to be unique. Right. And so 
take us through, like, if someone comes to you and says, you know, I hear that this inner critic in my mind, and now I'm having a hard time in the operating room because I just, I can't seem to get this critic to shut up. (laughs) They just, now I've listened to them, I've done the things, but it keeps coming up over and over again. Um, You know, what would you suggest to them? Yeah. So number one, I would say, welcome to the club, completely normal. And I think, I think, right. Human experience. Cause I think sometimes people will, they'll hear some ideas on some podcasts. They'll hear like us talking and be like, Oh, I just need to interact and be curious about my inner critic, understand where it's coming from. And then it'll just, it'll, yes, it'll go away. And then when it doesn't, they can think, okay, I've done it wrong. Or there's something wrong with me. There must be something so bad about me. That's why my critic keeps coming up. So number one, totally normal for something that you've done for 30 years to continue to be with you. So what you do about that is it actually, I mean, it's different for different people, but sort of in the generic sense, what we do with recurrent thought patterns is we have to, number one, notice the end result of them. So we look at like very slowly, we like slow everything down and we say, okay, when that critic comes on board, if its intention is to make sure that you cause no harm to people, which is noble intent, how do you actually feel and what do you actually do and what actually occurs when you hear that criticism? And we usually notice the irony is that like an inner critical voice, the very thing that it wants, it actually interferes with because it makes you feel worse, makes you feel tense, makes you feel all these things that might actually get in the way of doing an excellent job in the OR, for example. And so once we sort of peel that layer back, we can be like, oh, when we notice that it's actually not effective, then we get to get curious about like, okay, so really where did it come from? And that's, that usually takes some time to figure out like why it made sense, how it made sense. And the shift for making it change its tone, that can take a while. But I think the most important piece is just to start noticing, oh, I have this voice that shows up. And when I can interact with it in a different way, so I don't automatically believe it the moment it shows up, that's that space where we get to get into agency where we go, okay, inner critic is here. Hello, inner critic. Hello, brain. I see you. I know like you've been here with me for 45 years. Awesome. Thanks for joining me. Do you mind if I just finish this case without you? Totally happy to touch base with you later, whatever it is. But where we change the dynamics, we don't just automatically believe, but we actually engage with that critical part in a way that gives us space to show up how we want to show up without being like, what's wrong with me that it's here. And so that's usually the first step to that, because that is a process. It's not just a a five minute thing. And then your critic goes away. Like it's a, it's like a changing a relationship with like an in-law where you're like, this in-law keeps coming over and acting annoying. And I want to change that dynamic. It takes some time. I completely agree. I couldn't uh, agree more. And I think the most important aspect, and, and this is true, this actually reminds me of patients when they come into clinic and they're like, okay, I've been doing this for decades. And in this, you know, 15 minute uh, visit, I would like you to fix all of my problems. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And I think we all do that, right? Of You're course like, we do. Come with Why it? wouldn't yeah. we? <laughs> <laughs> Fix all my problems right now. Less, I do not want, isn't it the motivational triad? I want, I want what I want. I want as fast as possible and as easy as possible. Right. I mean, like when we're talking about, especially talking about surgery, like we want to be efficient and we want to like no wasted movements. We want to get it all done as best we can. And I think, I don't think that brings up a great point is that because of our training and because of what we needed to learn to be effective at that, sometimes we have absorbed this idea that we need to always move ahead really quickly. And if we intellectually get things really quickly, we should then therefore solve 
all the other things that are not the intellectual component, like how we feel in our bodies. You know, if we intellectually understand, oh, my thoughts create my feelings. Therefore, I'm just going to change my thoughts. I'll feel differently. Actually, I think part of the process and the beauty of, you know, coaching and therapy is that it really does force us to slow things down in a way that, you know, at least for me, extremely uncomfortable and rather annoying because I just like to get going and get to the root of things when really actually sort of the meta issue is sometimes when we are in that go, 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 that's actually at the core of, you know, us not getting to the root of why we feel how we feel. And so thus the slowing down is actually essential, even if it feels counterintuitive, counterproductive and frustrating. Exactly. And the more we resist it, the more things come up that said, you are not getting past this roadblock. You know, yes. here's another speed bump. Here's another speed bump. You know, well, actually, doesn't it start with rumble strips? And then <laughs> totally. Yeah. All so. of a sudden, like you were not getting past this. You might as well just start dealing with it. Exactly. And it can be hard to do that because like, it's almost, it seems like the shortcut to bypass. Like I'm going to bypass the swampy pit. And if I just bypass it and move on, I'm fine. But the way our minds and bodies work is that what, whatever is coming up for us, it's going to keep coming up. It's either going to get louder or it's going to present in a different way. It's going to keep coming up and it's actually more efficient to slow down and to address whatever is present, which I know, you know, so. Exactly. Well, you know, I really like the the framework of the thought model. It is so simple and it allows us to really explore how it's showing up because, you know, I, it, just like telling a patient, you know, your abdominal pain is musculoskeletal. No one wants to hear that. It's like, like, are you telling me it's my head? It's like, no, 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 don't. I'm going to tell you all the reasons that I think this should happen, but I want you to prove it to yourself. And that's what I like about the thought models. Like I could say like these thoughts that you have in your head, these are just words that you're telling yourself but I don't want you to believe me. Let's look and show, see how it's showing up in your life. So now you can understand that this actually is true, that when we think things, we create the results that we have and we're not doing it on purpose, but you know, we're just doing this because we didn't realize that we had a choice. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that because I think when there's that, when your client or your patient has that buy-in because you say, Hey, listen, please do not take it for me. I mean, sure. You can listen to me, but you need to see it for yourself. Like, and once you experience it, amazing. And if you don't, some totally fine. This model isn't the tool from the toolbox for you. But I think when we do that, then it's not like, we're not trying to push something on somebody. We're not trying to say, Hey, this is the, this is the one treatment plan for you. We're just like, this is something that seems highly effective. Try it on, see how you like it. And then we'll continue. I think it's so important that you do that. Yeah, absolutely. The biggest, I guess, beef that I have with a lot of advice that is given is everyone is telling you actions to do. You know, you should do this. You should call this person. You should write these words. You should do these things. You know, you should negotiate the way Chris Voss does. You know, all these things, the actions that people tell. Um, has, I always say you have to be really clear on what you're thinking and feeling before you do these actions, because you're not going to get the same result that someone else does. You know, Chris Voss can negotiate well because he's experienced, he trusts himself and, you know, he has a different emotion than us going, well, I'm still fearful that I'm not going to get this job and I may, I'm still not necessarily worthy of this job. And so, you know, we don't realize that all of those things leak into the actions that we do. Um, and so therefore we don't get the same results that other people get. We have to really clean up our thoughts and emotions before the actions. 
Oh, 100%. And I think this is super important for your listeners who are extremely good at doing all the things, taking all the actions and taking the advice from mentors, you know, like, oh, this is how I negotiate. Okay. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I'll do it. No problem. And I think the thing that crosses my mind as you say that is you and I could both be given a list of these are the 10 things you need to go do. And we could both go do them. And if you go do them from the thought, this is going to be so fun. I wonder what I'm going to learn. Even if it doesn't go well, I'm going to learn something great. And I know deep down, I'm going to figure it out. Your actions are going to be driven by either determination, confidence, something. If I go into it thinking, well, I hope it works. And if it doesn't, gosh, this is going to be really terrible. And I hope nobody sees me doing this because it's probably not going to work out. I will feel anxious and insecure and tense. And then I will try to cover it up by being like, okay, just, you know, put on your strong suit, Christy, and go do it. And the way I do my actions, even if like I got a response from other people that led to, you know, both you and I both got a, a job offer. My experience of doing all that at the end of the day is going to be, I'm still going to feel all those things from how I'm thinking. So the, the, the actions are almost irrelevant if we don't look at, you know, how we're thinking about ourselves in the world. Yes. My favorite way this shows up too is when someone says like, I have this difficult partner and, you know, I can't get, I, they're making me a worse surgeon. And I'm like, they actually are like, as long as you're thinking that, because, you know, what happens is like, if you're in the operating room and you ask them to come in and you're doing a case and they, you feel like they kind of blow you off. Um, and you know now you're hesitant to call them again. And so therefore you're never going to be open to learning new things. Or if you feel like they're a threat, then you're going to not ask them or you're going to overprove yourself and everything's going to feel harder. And we attribute it to this person who's just standing there. Yeah. Just, and I think it's, it gets to a huge point is that nobody, at least for me and for most of my clients that I see, nobody really sat us down and talked to us about what creates our experience. And it's the lived experience is so much like what you described. I feel this way because of how so-and-so acts and we can mm -hmm. point our finger to something because our lived experience is when so-and-so doesn't call me back or doesn't come to the OR or when they come to the OR and this is the way they behave, the emotion I feel in my body is this. So therefore they cause that. And it's, it makes sense. Like, you know, like if somebody runs over my toe with their car, I have pain that causes that, but we extrapolate that to other people's behavior, causing our emotions. And we just, nobody sat us down and said, Hey, listen, the way you think about their behavior creates your emotions and the way somebody else thinks about it creates theirs, which, you know, I always think, you know, there's some, some physicians out there who they're just not bothered by some things the way that others are. And they can have the same patient reviews, the same, you know, scrub tech that maybe they drive them crazy. And they're like, yeah, no big deal because of how they think about it. And then somebody else can be just, you know, completely decimated by things, not because of the review or the scrub tech, but because of you know, just their perspective on it and the story they tell themselves about it. Oh, I couldn't agree more because, you know, when we look for that external validation for how we feel about ourselves, no amount of reviews is going to make you feel satisfied. Like no amount of patients saying you're doing wonderful is going to make you feel okay. As long as you're still waiting for that one person to prove what you suspect is true, then you're always going to be like sitting and waiting in anticipation and ignoring all the evidence of the things that you're doing so well. Absolutely. I mean, and that touches on the, the perfectionistic thinking that I, we, you and I both see so much of that idea that once this happens, then I'll be okay. 
like once I get these good reviews, then I can feel satisfied when really it's actually an inside job. Completely agree. For one thing, it's so much easier to get to that place because we don't have to actually have anyone do anything different for us to feel a certain way. And uh, it takes a lot of pressure off other people. I remember listening to Corinne Crabtree talk about this. She says, you know, basically what's happening is that we can't provide this feeling for ourselves. So we ask someone else to do it. So now they feel pressure to do something we're supposed to do for ourselves. And we want them to do what we can't do. And yeah. they most likely have not actually ever proven that they could do that, but we still want them to do it. <laughs> right. It just, it's this weird circular loop that doesn't, it works transiently. Like, right. You know, if, we, if you get a good review and you feel really good and you think, oh, if I just get one more good review or I just do, you know, and so you think it works, but really the only reason it works is because you get the good review or somebody says something to you and you think a thought and you feel a feeling and you don't realize, oh, this is, this is from me. I remember hearing this recently where the perfectionist thinking, um, the trap of that is that there is no real definition for it. So, you know, we're always chasing this nebulous definition of perfection, which is going to be different for everyone. And for the person who can never actually, you know, achieve it, it's like an unachievable thing. So no complications, no one finding fault with us, you know, no one not liking our bedside manner. I mean, that is like an impossible standard. And as long as that is a standard, you, it's not safe to work because there's no end point to that. Yeah, exactly. Always is moving. And you're always this sort of like, even if you get there where you have a week, no complications, well, life is going to happen. And that definition or that lack of definition for the next week is going to just always keep you striving in ways that actually are counterproductive for excellence. So how do you approach the person that has some perfectionistic kind of thinking? Yeah, so I, I like I, I like consistency. So, and this will sound a little redundant, but with perfectionistic thinking, I first like to help people see that they have it. A lot of perfectionists don't realize that they're perfectionists because they think, well, perfectionists are perfect and I'm so far from perfect. There's no way that I'm that. And they don't realize that they even have thoughts like it's better to be better. My standard for perfection is here or here. They, they just don't even realize that. So the first thing is helping them see that there is a perfectionistic thinking pattern. And then I like them to basically to see the difference between perfectionistic thinking. It's better to be better. Perfection and flawlessness is the only standard. And high achievement thinking, which is, yeah, I want to go for excellence. And I understand that there's not a clear definition of that. And I'm going to learn along the way. And it doesn't say anything about my worth. And I can still want to improve, but improvement isn't the thing that will help me believe that I am worthy, whole, and capable human. I could just believe that on the onset. So once we make that distinction, then it gets back to the awareness piece of noticing any time the voice or the thoughts that come from the, I like to think about the committee of perfectionists in my mind. Usually for me, it's not just one voice. It's like this whole panel mm -hmm. and just noticing them and then noticing when they're there, how do I feel? And can I sort of unlink from those voices? So I don't automatically believe them and act from them, but I go, Oh, I noticed they're there. Oh, so interesting. Thank you. Perfectionistic department in my brain. I appreciate your perspective. And what else might also be true here? Is there another way that I could think about it on purpose? that would actually be more effective for me than that. And I think, you know, so it gets back to that awareness, curiosity, and engagement with those voices in a way that's different than just automatically believing them.
I think that's great. And you have such a professional approach to it about the the perfection department. Um, and Crin Crabtree calls it the itty bitty shitty committee. I love it, right? It is the itty bitty <laughs> shitty committee, if, that, if I said that right. Yes, totally agree. And But it is true, though. I mean, doesn't it feel like there is a department, like there's an entire department that are making these decisions? And, you know, of course, you know, who built that department is us. We've done this over years of, you know, we've created the head, we've created, you know, secretary, a treasurer, all, all the things, you know, we have actually created like these departments and sub departments in this department of perfectionism. Um, yeah. And my biggest problem, or I shouldn't say biggest problem, but, you know, I think how I try to approach this is that this perfectionist thinking is usually the flip side of a strength, as most weaknesses are you know, especially surgeons, you know, we do not want to make mistakes. You know, we want to do the best job that we can. We want complete ownership of these things. You know, we've been taught this, but if you do this to the extreme without some, you know, ability of what is reasonable, then, you know, the only way to, to interpret this is perfection. So therefore we are striving for an, um, unattainable it's unattainable goal and we're always going to be chasing that too so making sure that we are defining what is reasonable with facts um, is another way to to approach this as saying that recognizing we we didn't even recognize that we're like trying to achieve perfection you know the uh and when it comes to complications always remind people like when we sit down for this informed consent have have we accepted this informed consent do we consent to this procedure that has the possibility of a bleeding infection damage to stuff around it um but you know if we are not willing to accept those complications then that is a sign that we have perfectionist thinking oh 100% and i think just like you said like seeing that the perfectionistic thinking can be actually demonstration of a strength and not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, not trying to get rid of the thinking, but try to understand. So what's the positive intent behind that thinking? And how can I distill that part out, keep that part, but get rid of some of the constant striving, the anxiety, the insecurity that oftentimes comes along with perfectionistic thinking? Completely agree. Now, I know that, um, you know, these are big concepts and there's, you know, digging down decades of us, you know, training and, and things like that take time. So how do you work with someone? Take us through what someone would expect in working with you. Yeah. So working with me, usually we start off looking at what somebody's goals are. So if somebody comes to me and they want to work on their, you know, like their perfectionistic thinking, we get really concrete on exactly what that means, because if we're not concrete about it, it can be super amorphous. So we come up with very concrete goals for like, okay, I want to be second guessing less. I want to bring a work home with me less. I want to be able to think I'm doing a great job without having to hear my patients tell me all the time that I'm doing great. Or my partners tell me, I want to be able to have that from within. So once we get very clear on those, we start with the obstacles and that's where all the coaching begins. What's in the way of being able to internally create safety and validation for yourself. What's in the way of no longer second guessing and at the same time, retaining being detail oriented and conscientious what's in the way. And once we discover what's in the way, then that's where it's different for every person. And that's where we usually work on bringing awareness to thoughts. I do a lot of teaching on what it's like to actually feel emotions in your body, which is something that, you know, as an OBGYN, I'm really good at ignoring. I live from the neck up, not from the body down. And just that seemed kind of weird and kind of woo-woo to me, but it's actually highly practical. I mean, there's all sorts of evidence that, you know, 
our body-based experience is really an important factor for our mental well-being. And then I bring in internal family systems as sort of a paradigm for how the mind works, which you sort of referenced a minute ago, like when we have this committee in our mind, all these different parts, when we can see ourselves as a multiplicity and we could recognize these different voices, like as we literally go through our everyday, like this isn't just like in your journal, this is going through your day, getting out the door, being in the OR, being in clinic, noticing the different parts that come up and being able to engage with them in a different way so that going forward, you can be basically more intentional about how you want to think about your life, about what parts you listen to and what parts you go, oh, that's an interesting comment, but you know, no, thank you for now. We'll talk after surgery. Exactly. So that going forward, you can really basically do things deliberately because, you know, you and I know like life is short. We don't know our quantity of days or our quality of life. And we are going to be living on default. Sometimes we're going to feel like we're being batted around like a leaf in the wind. And so getting to that sense of agency, I think is just an amazing thing to head for. Right. And I know that you have a podcast and you also have, you know, website and things like that. Where do people find you? Yeah. So I like to keep it simple. Everything is habits on purpose. So my website is habitsonpurpose.com. My podcast is habits on purpose. I do a group for women physicians called habits on purpose for physicians and it's small group coaching and I do individual coaching and all the info is there. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Christy Angevine for coming on. And I, I really encourage everyone to check out your podcast, your work. And, you know, this is really the exponential effect that you're going to have on the world, you know, undoing all these things that we are using to harm ourselves. You know, I really do think that, you know, you have so much purpose in the world and I'm happy to elevate your mission. And well, I feel the same. And I do just want to take a minute and say, I think it's just phenomenal what you've created with your podcast, because we were talking before the podcast, but if I could just go back in time with this care package filled with all sorts of information to myself about 20 years ago, I would take your podcast with me in that care package. <laughs> it's just, and it's so great. So that the, you know, the generations who are coming before us are going to know how to think about things and how to process emotions and how to experience things in a way that I think it's going to help with, you know, their enjoyment of their career. It's going to help with their patient satisfaction. It's going to help with balancing, you know, the juggle of work and life and what they bring home and what they don't in ways that I think is just like you said, it's going to elevate everyone's experience. So thank you so much for what you do. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm sure I have a feeling that there's probably going to be a follow-up episode sometime in the future. So, <laughs> all right, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.